We've encountered the idea multiple times on the show that there is a relationship between the mind and the body in this very medical way. And we've talked to people who have studied Wim Hof, we've talked to people who have studied stress, but something that we've never really talked about is the practice of mindfulness, of meditation, and of the benefits that we can achieve on an individual level by changing the way that we see the world. And, and the dangers. And the dangers. And so today we have our first roundtable conversation. We have Dr. Joe Arpaia and Dr. Lobsang Rapke. And they, uh, almost like 20 years ago, wrote a book together called Meditation in Minutes a Day. And the idea was that you could basically learn to manage yourself more effectively in a really straightforward and low effort. I don't want to say low effort. You can manage yourself in a, really, in a straightforward and realistic way. And so we have them on the show today to talk about stress, about dissatisfaction, about the hedonic treadmill, and about the way that our internal states play out on the world that we live in and how the world that we live in feeds back onto ourselves. And it's a fantastic conversation. They have a lot of insight onto the human condition, onto the social condition. And onto what's happening in the world right now, um, why everything feels like it's on fire and what we can, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that we solved that issue, but there are some steps we can take and we're working towards those in all of our discussions actually here. So if you like this podcast, please share it with somebody. This is how we reach new people. This is how we get better and better guests. Also, if you have thoughts, please leave comments and talk to us. Talk to all of the other people that are listening so we can move these ideas forward as we go. And if you've already done that and you want to help more, support us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash demystifysci. That's how we can make more of these and how we can get better and better. Yeah, we, we're putting that money all back into this project. So we're going to take this show on the road. We're going to find a way to technologically do these podcasts in real time so people can actually participate in the discussions. Um, but we need help. So even if you can only give a couple bucks a month, it will add up. It is adding up already. So thank you guys so much if you are already supporting us. Otherwise, enjoy this conversation. The scientific revolution starts now. You know, the concept of anxiety, anxiety is defined as, uh, as uh, uh, excessive concern about a future-oriented uh, issue or a problem. And it's actually a survival mechanism we all need. Anxiety is very important for our performance, uh, for protecting us and preparing us for unexpected or perceived threats and situations. So it's very critical to survival. The problem is when it becomes excessive and interferes with our day-to-day -day functioning, such as social and in, uh, and occupational uh, functioning, then it can become pat uh, pathological. So it's something that senses. However, the problem with anxiety is one needs to understand that it's driven by core fear. And the psychoanalytical people, of course, uh, uh, attribute it to a, 
to the death in instinct, which is the fear of being annihilated when the infant feels like in the darkness without the mental capacity it has yet to develop. The darkness uh, and the absence of the mother's breast when it's hungry produced intense fear of being not only deprived, but also destroyed. And that fear is then projected out into the external world. And so it, after a while, begins to see the darkness, uh, begins to look in the room and sees that the cupboard is dark. And it's actually its own fear that has been projected out. And it then reacts to the darkness as something threatening. And that's where anxiety really starts. It's a fear-based. But today, most of our approach to anxiety is primarily treating it as a cognitive disorder uh, and kind of uh, uh, paying less attention to its core issue, which is its underlying uh, fear, fear of the unknown, and particularly the intolerance for uncertainty, which is derived from fear of the unknown. And... uh, so animals, you will find it, uh, you know, a lot of the research uh, on fear actually derives from animal models. Uh, and with borderline, it's more complex, you know. It's something found more in, uh, in women, generally. It's a splitting of, uh, of uh, one's thoughts into good and bad, one's affect into good and bad, and therefore it becomes very difficult in the interpersonal context to know when the person uh, and is at and how to respond to them because they shift between uh, different opposing thoughts and opposing feelings because their perception of you is also split. They can see you as a very good person at one time and within one hour can see you as uh, depriving, withholding, and then begin to react to that. So it's a very difficult disorder to uh, treat, though they are very promising and uh, good uh, current treatments for it, yet it's still a field that requires, uh, you know, uh, further research and development. Is that a new, is that a modern uh, phenomenon or is borderline is the, yeah where does this come I from? I would imagine it existed throughout history you know narcissistic and borderline they are within the same spectrum and you know that narcissistic personalities exist throughout history the, of course identifying and classifying it as such uh, is more recent and of course, modern lifestyle certainly uh, amplifies the borderline personality in a way probably we haven't seen it in the past. Because modern lifestyle does play a big role in the amplification of the personality traits that are defined as borderline. Is that because people can can casually answer and leave relationships really easily and the the choices yeah i'm just curious like what has changed choices whereas in the older times the social constrictions were huge and the price of you know uh separating was 
uh, enormous that you would think many times over taking that uh, risk. But that innovation no longer exists. And this sense of freedom uh, allows the borderline, if you have a borderline trait, it gives further permission for it to act out. Is it called borderline because you're always on the border of one of these extreme, like you're split between these extreme positions on things or what, what is you that? It's a strange sim- name. Yes. The simple reason is split between a psychotic and the neurotic. You know, you kind of are in the border of that. When there's stress, you will move into the psychotic uh, uh, expressions or manifestation and when you are calm and collected, you'll move into the neurotic. But it's very fluid. So you'll find a lot of borderlines are attracted to uh, spiritual quests because they, they will move from extremes. They are extremely attracted to spiritual endeavors and they can do quite well for under uh, optimal conditions such as ones that are very nurturing, containing. But once the conflict arises within that containment uh, or environment, then they can act out in ways that can uh, be quite uh, uh, traumatic for everybody concerned in that community. Mm. It makes me go back to... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Did, did you have something else to add? No, please go ahead. Yeah. Yes, uh, that's it. It makes me think of the assessment stage because it seems like, uh, like Dr. Arpaio was saying earlier, that in the remediation of anxiety in these uh, programs, that uh, you're really focusing on taking a step back and reassessing the situation. It might not be as it first appeared to you. And it seems like in the case of this this disorder you're speaking of, there's this uh, there's some sort of mismatch at the as- assessment stage in, in these individuals, and, and is that driven by the high pace uh, of the modern times, or um, yeah, how do you treat that? Well, you know, the uh, there's a distinction between uh, anxiety disorder and. Uh, a borderline. Borderline is a personal personality trait. It's kind of an inborn. It's a part of your personality. Whereas the anxiety disorder is, you know, you may have predisposition to anxiety genetically, but it's a disorder. It's access, you know, uh, to diagnosis, and uh, there's a difference between what uh, groups they fall into. Uh, so. Uh, with borderline, it's not so. It's true. It's uh, there's a issue with assessment uh, of the environment, but it's more that that's how they are. It's built into their personality. It originates with a, a depriving or overbearing, over controlling mother, uh, uh, and trauma can play a role. Uh, exacerbate the situation, but trauma alone doesn't uh, lead to uh, uh, cause a borderline condition, though it can exacerbate it. It's more the family environment in which you are raised. If you have an absent father or an alcoholic father and a mother that is withdrawn and depressed, 
then uh, the child's development of uh, particularly his perceptual and cognitive processes and including the affective, they become uh, complicated. It doesn't know how to distinguish between what is good and what is bad, when to respond to each and how to respond. And thus, it uses more primitive mechanisms that are within it. Yeah, what's the child experiencing in that environment? Like, what's in the, what's going on in the mind of that child that leads them to form these very fast assessments that m- might be polarizing to some? From everything that I've heard, the like the most successful treatment for borderline is is Marshall Linehan's uh, skills training, right? Where it's basically right. like there's it's there's a very, it's a very good training, yes, but also psychoanalytical psychotherapy has shown to be equally uh, effective treatment. Mm. Uh, um, the dialectic or uh, the uh, Minahan's uh, treatment is, uh, in terms of research base, is the most researched and the issues is seen as the most uh, effective. That's absolutely true. The, it's primarily a skill-based training. Mm. Uh, and thus, you know, uh, skills-based training means you identify a behavioral or a cognitive uh, problem that the patient is exhibiting, assess it, and then address that by providing a particular appropriate skill. Uh, on the other hand, the psychoanalytical looks more at the dy- psychodynamics. What motivates a child to behave in this extreme manner in a particular situation? Uh, and it looks at the primitive uh, way it perceives uh, the world without realizing that much of its perception, uh, misperceptions are determined by its projection of its uh, awful feelings of being neglected, abandoned, ignored, humiliated onto the uh, uh, caregiver. And now the caregiver is seen as depriving and uh, a person who hates the child, and the child thus develops a, re- a defensive react uh, stance towards, and it's caught in that virtu- virtual world. And the only way it gets respite is maybe it finds a doll or it fantasizes that there's a good mother and there's an angel, and it, in its mind or fantasies, play with it. And that's where it seeks its uh, the good caregiving. But it's fantasy. It's a creation of its own mind, which acts as a, helps it to survive, but prevents it from actually finding real caregiving from a real lived person. And that's the downside of it. So until we address though, that underlying issue, uh, the borderline you know, issues, uh, it's difficult to treat. That issue can still persist in spite of good uh, skills they live, uh, mm. they learn to manage day-to-day uh, splitting that occurs. Mm-hmm. So it's and complex. So, it's a complex disorder. Yeah, I mean, like anything. I think that any time that you start, you know, messing around with what happens to people after they've grown up in 
I, I, what amounts to not a very good childhood. I imagine that it's going to be complicated because all of those things manifest in many different ways. That's but right. I wanted to see if we can connect this back to the work that Dr. Arpaia is doing, where, you know, when I think of, when I think of the underlying problem with anxiety or something like borderline, it's, it's trauma and a lack of skills. And I find it hard to imagine that you could build a police department or any kind of law enforcement agency that isn't full of people that are filled with trauma and have not great skills. Because that's just, you know, the framework for the world also. And right. so how do you how do you deal with that? Like what is what is your what is your perception of this? Well, I don't I think I don't think the police officers are are any more traumatized than the general public. In fact, I think they're in general they're they're they start out a healthier bunch hmm. because they have to go through screening and some training and especially depending on the the department there's more or less training involved. Um some of that training can be quite intense. The I I conceptualize anxiety somewhat in the following way. There's something I'll call unease. And unease is desire for something you don't have. And it's not an intellectual I want. It's this feeling of I want that. I, I've got to have that. I think in Buddhist psychology, I think they sometimes call this craving. So it's a very visceral experience. And the counterpart to desire is aversion, which is the same thing sort of pushing away. So desire is, give me, I want this, I want to get that. There's a pull toward the object. Aversion is there's a push away. And we all feel that. And it's, it's a, it, we don't like it. And when it goes down, we experience pleasure. So pleasure is a reduction in unease. We get what we want. We avoid what we don't want. And what we call emotion, like anxiety, is unease in a context. So there's, an, a, there's the feeling of unease, and the context of threat makes us feel anxious. If the context is loss, it makes us feel sad. If the context is I'm not making progress, we may call that frustration. So unease in context gives you your emotion. And when I think of anxiety, there's another component so unease is one, I'll call it one form of stress. The, envi the environment causes unease. The environment also puts demands on us. So it's another form of stress, the demands compared to the resources we have to deal with them. So let's say a concrete example, bills. If my, if my bills are X amount and I have a salary that's about that much, then I'm, my difficulty is not so bad. If my bills are greater than my income, I have a high difficulty situation. If my my income goes up, my difficulty goes down. So there's this interplay between demands and resources that creates difficulty. Difficulty and unease exist together. We assess difficulty, we appraise unease. And I just actually just wrote a blog post in response to a, a CNN article that I was quoted in, exact, you know, explaining a bit more about anxiety. And I defined four types. There's unease is high and difficulty is low. And this is typically what I think we see in generalized anxiety disorder. There's really no pressing. I mean, we all have demands and stuff, but there's nothing really pressing. But the person's, they're uneasy, they're anxious. And there's this sense of this underlying, this looming threat. You know, something's wrong. Something's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen. Um, that's one type of anxiety. Another type of anxiety is where the unease is artificially high 
because the person's set, appraising their 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 life as being uh, falling short. So advertisers, our culture, um, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of pressures to you know keep up with the Joneses to want more, uh, and that can a person can then develop these desires that are way over overblown and cause a lot of problems. I had long time ago, I had a patient come in for his intake and he, the question was, is he manic? And he was actually in his very agitated, anxious state. And what he was, he, he had a good job, he had a family and he decided he was going to run his own business and it was going to happen right away. And he was working these insane hours to get his own business started. And it was driving him crazy and he was really going to lose his family and probably his health, given how his heart, heart he was pushing. And I, I, my sense was he does, his unease was artificially high. He really had nothing to be uneasy about. His difficulty was manageable. I, I gave him a reappraisal assignment. I said, I, I said, I want you to fast forward, you know, 50 some odd years in the future, and you're at your own funeral. And what are people saying about you? What are your wife and kids saying about you? And how much of it does, does it have to do with you running your own company? What do you want people to be saying about you when you're dead? And I told him, come back in two weeks. Came, that is such a hard exercise to do. I, I think he, every, everybody should do that once a day, actually. He, told, he said it was a very hard exercise, but it completely reoriented him. And he said his anxiety was gone. He had reconnected with his family. He said, if I want to run my own business, I'll, I'll do it in a sustainable way. That's something I can, I can I'll, I'll, you know, I'll back off. Um, but so it could have just un- as un- easily. It could have just as easily come out that he came back to you and was like, "No, I want to be remembered for the business." Right. Right. I took a. Re- I mean, but that would have been his choice then. Then it would have been. I mean, he, in other words, his unease. He, what he would do, was doing is no. This is really my value system. This is what I want to live for. Mm, there's and, like a mismatch of some sort. Right. That, that's that's where the pain was coming from. Right. Because right. if yeah, I guess if you decide like, nah, I want to actually devote myself to. Yeah, it's like screw my family. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, like oh, well, I probably Steve shouldn't Jobs. be. Yeah, shouldn't be married then. That's fine, yeah. and that's or, what I'm going to do. Or he renegotiates with his family to let them know this is really, really, this is a true core value for me. Okay, mm. but what he'd done is he'd gotten values that were kind of. You know, he was keeping up with some of his friends who had their own companies and stuff. And so it's like, no, this wasn't his real core value. So it was making his him want something that he didn't really want. That's what I mean by unease artificially high. And advertising does that. You know, our culture tends to do that. We have to be on guard for that. Um, another time, another kind of anxiety is when difficulty is artificially high. Then that occurs when we're we're missing our resources. Where you know we see the demands as greater than the resources because we're overestimating demands and we're underestimating resources, and people tend to do. That's why there's a saying: "Don't make mountains out of molehills." You know, we tend to. Oh my God, that's so hard. And well, you got these. Look around you. You've got some resources, and that really responds. That 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 kind of anxiety responds to reassessment skills. You need to, you know, start, you know, look at, make a list of what you really need to accomplish. How maybe you have more time than you have. Maybe you can get more time. Um, what are your social connections? And so, I guess. A, I'll, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Okay. And then the fourth type of anxiety, and I deal a lot with people with the fourth type of anxiety, where they're anxious because their difficulty is really high. I work with the you know, a number of my patients are publicly funded. You know, so they're on an Oregon health plan and 
I sometimes don't know how in the heck they do it. They're single parents, they're low-income jobs, they're juggling enormous numbers of, of demands, and they have very few resources. And for them, anxiety, it's, it's like, well, of course they're anxious. And there, what I'm helping them do is, you know, sometimes using my position to try to get some extra, you know, here, check with this agency, you maybe have some resources here, here, maybe we can get the demands lowered. You know, you have to play, it's like, it's really social work to treat the anxiety. That's that's kind of where I wanted to go, which is that there is a subset of people who are genuinely in positions of 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 lack, right? They they don't have the resources that they need, and the society is structured in such a way that it's not for them the way that it should be, and that seems like the the category of like people need help that isn't necessarily psychological they need material help but then there's this other aspect where people are just experiencing difficult emotions where you know the the unease and the difficulty aren't necessarily matched and in that context i wonder and this is kind of a question for for both of you how do people react to being told okay you can fix this versus there's a pill that can fix this i actually had someone asked me because she wasn't responding well to medications and she had what Loeb saying has described, you know, the borderline personality disorder. So she, her, her relationships were always very, very, they were very anxiety charged with anxiety. And, and she actually asked me, don't you just have a magic pill that I can take and will fix all my problems? I mean, that's a quote. (laughs) And the answer is no, we we don't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's very often for a lot of it's a combination of we have to do something to the environment and you have to respond differently to that environment. And both are needed. And go ahead, Lobsang. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, that's pretty much the case. I mean, you to explain to them that, uh, you know, uh, you to explain to them the benefits, particularly if they're uh, if their symptoms are such that they are having enormous amount of uh, functioning problems to the point that it could disrupt their family life or occupational responsibilities, then you might suggest that they take medication for a while. But overall, you basically, if that's not the case, then you give to educate them of the benefits and the side effects of taking medication and the evidence that uh, psychotherapy uh, and uh, uh, medication overall seem to have pretty much the same uh, outcome for certain type of disorders. And if they fall into one of those disorders for for which the outcomes are the same, then you would uh, encourage them first if their symptoms are not extremely disruptive and dysfunctional to first try out psychotherapy as the pathway first because it has uh, the outcome is pretty much the same and does not pose the risk of uh, uh, risk of side effects 
uh, that uh, medication could for this particular uh, patient, but you do need to, for psych- psychologists, you need to consult a psychiatrist at the same time. The therapist needs to, in regards to the patient, and uh, you know, uh, see what the psychiatrist feels about uh, your recommendation. And one, one does, it's not either or. I find that um, medications seem to, what drive, anxiety is a disorder that tends to feed on itself. So a lot of times it's the person feels uneasy for maybe the, because difficulty is high or for other reasons, but the unease causes unease. So they're actually uneasy about feeling uneasy. Hmm. So there's this feeling, the unease, is aversive and that causes more unease. Well, now you have a feedback loop. Sometimes the unease causes body experiences that are uncomfortable. So the person gets uneasy about the sympathetic activation, the chain of palpitations or tension or butterflies in the stomach. That's another feedback loop. You might say it's more between the midbrain and the brainstem, whereas the unease feeding on itself is a brainstem, is a midbrain loop. Now, a beta blocker will tend to break, will tend to inhibit that feedback loop between the anxiety and the somatic symptoms. So the person, this, that's why performers use beta blockers so much. There's, it, it blunts that sympathetic, that activation, sympathetic activation and blunts the feedback loop. So you don't have the feedback loop, you don't have a problem. SSRIs, SNRIs, medications, those seem to blunt that an unease itself. The unease doesn't cause as much unease. It's blunting that feedback loop. It, it's, um, I use the analogy, I said, you know, it's, it's kind of like, an, the anxiety is like having your finger in a light socket, you know, and the SSRI, your finger is still in the light socket, but now you've got a neoprene glove on. So you're not feeling the current as much. And one of the most common side effects of SSRIs, which are very commonly given for anxiety or the SNRIs, is a blunting of emotional experience. So the, it's like the, it dampens emotional experience, which again, very important because it allows someone to work on the psychotherapeutic techniques because the intensity of the experience is blunted. So they actually can, you know, work through the process. I've had people who've worked with a therapist other than myself, or sometimes with me. And after a while, they'll tell me, I'd like to come down on the medication. I'd like, because I want to feel more. Now I can feel, you know, I've got more resilience. I I have more capacity to feel negative affect, negative emotions. I'd like to cry at a sad movie. You know, so now we start coming down very carefully on the medication, moving at a rate that their brain can adjust to, which sometimes takes months. But then they're able to have a more, full range of emotion and not get overwhelmed. Go ahead. Yeah, it's really way, interesting. What do you make? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to mention, you know, that by the way, the one, uh, uh, in addition to psychotherapy, there's a growing interest in using mindfulness, actually, for treating anxiety disorders, as well as depression, you know, the uh, data for depression, particularly for, uh, you know, three or more uh, recurrence of depressive episodes. Uh, mindfulness has shown 
great promise, you know, in preventing further relapse, which medication hasn't been able to acquire. So, uh, and uh, there are uh, increasing evidence that mindfulness can be very helpful for depression, uh, for anxiety and depression. Though the literature is very, in its, it's in very early stages, and often many of the studies don't use, uh, you know, active control. Active control is the one that where you control, uh, you incorporate all the components of the active treatment, such as uh, mindfulness, and use a control group that uh, has all the other components that the mindfulness uh, treatment has, except for mindfulness, and then test the two group. Uh, the problem is when uh, active uh, control has been used to study current forms of westernized mindfulness, the data doesn't look the same. It's not as effective as when active controls have not been used, whether it's about the claim about change, MBSR or mindfulness, westernized mindfulness, changing the structure of, uh, structure of the brain, or whether it's about the core, uh, you know, therapeutic ingredient, active ingredient of MBSR, which is sustained attention, has been shown that when active control was used, uh, MBSR uh, subjects did no better than the control in terms of attentional measures. So uh, that is the, uh, you know, as well as what type of instruments you use to measure the different components, active components of mindfulness, such as sustained attention. You need to use a measure that involves at least 20 minutes of uh, sustained attention. If you don't use uh, a measure that measures attention for at least 20 minutes, then it's very hard to claim that uh, sustained attention is improved uh, by a particular measure. So there are many problems currently underlying, uh, you know, uh, the study of mindfulness. And that's why it's, uh, and not only that, in all of its, uh, you know, there are increasing studies coming out with other uh, active ingredients of uh, mindfulness or mechanisms of MBSR such as non-judgmental, uh, you know, attitude, which is the core, one of the core therapeutic ingredients that makes MBSR so successful, certainly in a clinical context. But recent research has shown that, you know, uh, teaching people to be non-judgmental via mindfulness resulted in them feeling less guilty and when they felt less guilty, they were less likely to apologize for something they did wrong. So their reparative pro-social behavior decreased. And in our society today, you know, actually, I remember a couple of years ago, I did a grand rounds for the UCLA Veterans Hospital. And I, this was about 10 years ago, I brought up these issues 
because MBSR was being used by many of the psychiatric residents at the veterans. And I brought up this issue. I said, you know, if I had a child, at that time I didn't. Uh, so if I had a child, I wouldn't encourage them to learn how to be non-judgmental at that five, six years old. Their brains are just not uh, developed enough to learn that uh, high-level cognitive uh, functioning. They need to learn a more basic core cognitive functioning, which is to learn to judge between right and wrong, good friends and bad friends, good behavior and bad behavior. So I would not at all. And clearly, uh, 10 years later, you know, in this famous recent uh, study that came out from uh, Europe, uh, primarily from Oxford, where they studied 28,000 students between, I think, age 11 to 14, over 600 schools or something. I'm not sure how many schools. It's a huge age-year massive research. And what they found out that in the protocol that was used, which is primarily inspired by MBSR, was they found out that uh, actually for in terms of social and emotional uh, issues, MBSR was actually quite uh, de derived mindfulness that they provided was actually quite harmful to many of the uh, students who had emotional problems. And then the majority of them only practiced M uh, M the mindfulness practice only once a week. Probably I think they practiced for the eight weeks that they were uh, taught, they practiced only a couple of times or even just once. Because they, and the reason was majority of them said, ah, it's very boring to practice. Mm. So uh, that, that led the researchers, many of them, to now suggest that maybe we should not, you know, universally prescribe MBSR-based uh, mindfulness uh, to children at large. We should be very cautious. We should identify those children who it may benefit and apply it to them. But for others, maybe more uh, teaching social and emotional skills, uh, the standard skills in psych from a psychological perspective and behavioral perspective may be better. So this is leading, at least in my work, is leading me to go back to the original teachings of mindfulness that the Buddha himself, it said, uh, practiced in the six years when he worked towards enlightenment under the Buddha tree and the teachings which is enshrined in the five suttas. The suttas are like the Bible in the sense that uh, they are the many people, scholars and others believe they enshrine the actual teachings of the Buddha. And there are five of them, all of which, uh, you know, present uh, the four foundations of mindfulness uh, as the Buddha practice. So I'm looking at those. And what are those? I, those are, you know, quite interesting. You, if you read those, they are worlds apart from the westernized uh, or the modern, I wouldn't say westernized, I would say the Burmese modernized version of 
mindfulness. You know, in all religious traditions, it starts out with a very philosophical, concrete, pragmatic approach. And then over time, you have, uh, you know, um, uh, you have other teachers come along and then mystify the religious traditions. Mm. Suddenly it becomes mystical. It becomes, uh, uh, you know, uh, it becomes something more than what it, the original teaching was taught. And there may be something to that in Buddhist, uh, how Buddhism has evolved. And that's why it seems important uh, to go back to the original, what the uh, what is happening now in the West, certainly. There's a uh, strong group of Buddhist uh, teachers in the West who are now going back to what they called early Buddhism, which even predates to some extent the Pali Theravadan form of Buddhism, and trying to flesh out what was the real teachings of the Buddha. And while I think that's very important, but I uh, I think one of the danger which I can see happen is many of them then uh, dismiss the subsequent richness of uh, that other teachers have brought over to the Buddhism, to ones that are incredibly, you know, rich and offer uh, 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 ones that can uh, allow Buddhism to, you know, in the, the, these current days, enrich our perspective and how we were, see world problems and our role in it, such as the issue of emptiness and compassion, which are post-Buddhist, uh, Buddha, uh, Buddha's, uh, you know, uh, teachings that uh, other teachers much later, 300 years after the Buddha passed away, brought. So, you know, th th we are going through a incredible metamorphosis as West, as the West uh, looks at Buddhism. And as you know, with Buddhism, whichever country it goes to, it incorporates that country's, uh, you know, culture and traditions and philosophies into the mix. And we are seeing this happening in a very rich way in the West today. Not, it's not kind of evident, but it's happening very slowly. And I think it's a wonderful process unfolding. Yeah. Before we, I want to clarify that. What are the five teachings that are foundational there? Oh, sorry about that. I meant to. First is the uh, mindfulness on the body. Then on feelings, feelings here is not emotions. They are differentiated in the Buddha. And it's very important to make that uh, distinction because now new research in cognitive science is actually showing that the core underlying source for emotion is feelings. Feelings here refers to our reaction to sensations, bodily sensations. There are three types of sensation, two, two main types of re responses to bodily sensation, pleasurable and unpleasurable. And these two responses form the core. These are the invariant core basis 
for then emotions evolving later. And this is now being presented by, like Professor Barnett has a similar view, which the Buddhists have been talking about for thousands of years. The second, uh, the third foundation is thought and emotions, using mindfulness to study the mechanisms of thought and emotions. And finally, the fourth foundation is how to overcome resistance of uh, we have towards using mindfulness to study the body, to study feelings, to study thought and emotions, and how you, after you overcome the resistance, then you begin to uh, uh, pursue the four noble truths. There are four truths that life is suffering, that there is a cause of suffering, and there is a state that is free from suffering, and how to reach that state which is free from suffering. So those are the uh, four, uh, the four foundations of Buddhism. But the key concept here is the two uh, methods used to uh, work through these four foundations. One is sustained attention. Sustained attention has two purposes, uh, is to understand a particular object in its entirety, all its component, and store it in working in long-term memory. So then, so that when you do that, you no longer have to put effort in working with that sustained attention, right? Like bicycling. Uh, when you learn how to bicycle, that's what happens. That's one purpose. The second purpose is what mindfulness is really interested in. It's to inhibit our projections onto our experiences. So if I see a car, it teaches me not to instinct, instinctively give in to my urge to see it as beautiful because I like the red color of the car, but instead to see first, inhibit that projection and to see the car as simply as a car. Now, when you take it to bodily experiences, feelings, thoughts and emotions, and that's where the meat of this practice really speaks to us because everything is a projection, right? Uh, by, we are driven by biases, implicit biases, preferences, and from a psychoanalytical perspective, attachment to what we like or what we gives us pleasure, aversion towards what we hate. And so uh, second type of uh, uh, method used in mindfulness is metacognition. This is really important because metacognition is learning how to uh, observe your own thoughts, feelings, emotions, and behavior and see its consequence on the external world. Once you are aware of it, then you need to, metacognition further inquires, how did you learn that? How did you, uh, what, did, what causes it? And what amplifies, exacerbates it? Or, and then how you can remedy it or modify it. That's called metacognition. And unfortunately, you know, in, uh, 
understood the Buddhist current presentation of four foundations of mindfulness ignores these two methods. They describe it very vaguely, but they and they immediately jump into presenting the four foundations. So until you learn, uh, for instance, metacognition, they simply state it as, oh, it's simply being aware of your thoughts and feelings. But that's not metacognition. That's just one step. You have to go further using metacognitive mechanisms. The two together, skills together, are incredibly powerful. You know, if you are a student, you learn. Uh, Why do I... Didn't pass the exams. What mistakes did I make? It. It's not enough to know what mistakes you made, but know why you made it, and that requires metacognitive abilities. Not simply reading or listening to your professor who says, "Oh, you failed because you failed to answer this question in this way." And that's very helpful, but. You need to ask yourself, why did you, why did you answer that question? The professor can tell you, uh, you failed because you answered this question in this way, but you need to ask, why did I do that? And you need, this is a laborious pro- process, but student, it's been shown, students who do that, use metacognition, do much better than students who don't. Hmm. It's interesting because it brings back uh, what Dr. Arpaio was talking about at the beginning with stepping back and assessing the situation. And it's it's kind of crazy how well that works when you pull it off, how if you just are able to detach momentarily from the chaos that's surrounding you and just get a new perspective on things, you might notice things that you hadn't noticed before and they can stabilize your perspective. And another thing I wanted to comment yeah. on is that the, the Eastern tradition here... Um, and my understanding is you actually came from a very deep uh, Buddhist background as well, which I'd like to hear more about soon. But uh, it also parallels a, a, somewhat, a, a somewhat revived tradition in the West, which is Stoicism, which is also about uh, s- separating yourself from your immediate feelings so that you can assess them. And it seems like, I don't know, it just seems like assessment is really the gold that's at the heart of a lot of these therapies, like self-assessment. Yeah, if I could talk, because I, when I see patients, which I do frequently during the week, um, they've told me one of the most powerful methods is to be able to distinguish difficulty from unease. So unease is what you want in the moment. It's your feeling. I want this or I want to get away from that. Difficulty is what's important based on your value system. And we get confused about the two. We think that, you know, this is what I want and that's, that's what's important. It's like, no. And a lot of times what you have to do is realize, okay, I'm, I have to tolerate the unease in order to reduce the difficulty, which brings down unease slowly. Okay. And so when teaching people, you know, to be aware of their thought, is this, is this, I, I talk about, forget, we're not going to talk about right and wrong or good and bad. What we're going to do is look, what's helpful? Is it helpful? Is it get, is this reducing my difficulty or is it unhelpful? Is this increasing my difficulty? If I want to ignore a task because it's aversive, okay, 
Well, is that making my life more difficult or less difficult in the long run? It's making my life more difficult. Okay, that I don't want, I have to be able to push through the unease in order to do the task. And one of the ways I do that is to, I call it attentional discipline. If I focus my attention on what's making me uneasy, then the unease goes up and up and it feels un, it feels impossible to resist. If I focus my attention on the importance of the task and the people who will benefit from it, then it's I'm much more likely to be able to do the task. Here's, here's an example I use to separate difficulty and unease. Imagine there's a board on the ground. It's, you know, 18 inches wide. It's 50 feet long. It's nice and thick. And your task is to walk from one end of the board to the other. That's an easy task. If the board is narrower, we have a four-inch board, that's a harder task. So the, the width of the board is, your re, is a resource. And if you have a lot of resource wide, it's easier than if it's narrow. Okay, take the wide board, 18 inches wide. It's almost as wide as a sidewalk. Put it up 300 feet in the air. Okay. It's the same board, but there's something very different about the task. <clears throat> and that's the unease we all tend to have about walking out over 300 feet of space without guardrails. And that unease will tend to grab our attention. We're looking down. We've lost sight of the board. Our heart rate goes up. Our you know, we have physiologic changes from that unease that actually can make it harder to walk. So our ability to balance may go down. How do you deal with that? I've been in places where I've had to walk, you know, been in, at high elevation. You focus on the board. You don't look down. You look at the board. Now, let's say someone is, you know, there's a task that's really important. There's a little kid on the other side of the, you know, at the other end of the board, and they're starting to crawl out on that board. Now you've got someone to rescue. First responders know this. You focus, you focus on, oh, my gosh, I've got to take care of this person. And now you're, you're, you're not even aware of the unease. In fact, sometimes in first responders, we have to tell them, no, you got to be aware of your situation so you don't run out in front of traffic. Okay, so again, it's, it's using this attentional discipline. What Loeb Singh was talking about, the, the sustained attention, what you learn is this attentional discipline, how to direct your attention to what's important and keep it there without a lot of effort. And if it gets distracted, you realize it and you bring it back. And then your metacognitive skills start to help you notice that this is helpful, this is not helpful. We don't have to say bad, good, it's not helpful. Yeah, the bad, reorientation good. towards towards goals is something that I just see play out all the time in my own life. Like we do a lot of rock climbing and I, I found I noticed something really interesting a while back, which is that the more difficult routes are often less scary because you're actually so fixated on completing the moves that you don't really have time to like look around and be like oh my god I'm 100 feet off the deck and what if this piece of gear doesn't hold and all these things that because the climbing is not taking your attention and it's just it's so fascinating too because the, the, I think the Stoics would agree that a lot of the pain in your life comes from paying attention to problems that you can't control and I think if you're on a plank you know, 500 feet off the ground, you can't control the fact that, you know, you're 500 feet off the ground. So it's probably not what you should be paying attention to. How do you strengthen that ability? Like, how can we, how can we, maybe we don't actually go to therapy or, or work on these things. How can we do it at home every day to, to actually strengthen our attention towards the things that matter? 
Um, well, Lob Singh and I wrote a book many years ago that goes into <laughs> some of these techniques. <laughs> so get the book, everybody. Hey, real, med- ago, right? real meditation in minutes a day. <laughs> well, you know, you could, uh, with sustained attention, uh, you know, the, from a Buddhist perspective, and also which now uh, is the uh, basis for all uh, you know, uh, research uh, using mindfulness for developing sustained attention is to st- uh, focus it on a gross part of oneself rather than abstract like thoughts or emotions. Start with focusing on the body, uh, particularly the breath, because that's something you can feel. And it's con- in that sense, it's a concrete object. And you follow your breath as you... And the key is to first relax and make sure uh, you're not breathing too much from the uh, chest, but more from the abdomen. And then when you, uh, you can cho- uh, choose the, uh, a spot at the inner part of your nostril and you select that as the spot to feel the breath as you inhale and exhale. And uh, your attention should begin at the start of the inhalation, go to uh, follow the breath right through the uh, end of it and similarly do it when you exhale. And when you get distracted, don't be critical about the distraction. Simply note that, oh, you are distracted and come back. Come back to the breath again and again. And the key thing is, uh, before you begin meditation, uh, doing this practice, you've really got to extra, uh, establish a, uh, a positive and a motivational attitude that this is going to help me. I really want to do this. I'll start with just five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening. And that there will be some goals. You know, I'm going to, my first goal would be just for 10 seconds holding my attention on the movement of the breath from the beginning to the, and I will see if I can achieve that in three days and then increase it to 15 seconds. If you can, ultimate goal is to achieve about one minute if you can. That takes quite a bit of challenge, but half a minute is a really good target, practical target to work towards. And when you achieve that for a week, you can repeat that performance. Then you can shift to sensations in the body. Like you you just stay calm, start with the breath, but then don't put all your attention on the breath. Just say whatever comes up from my body, whatever signal sensation comes up that catches my mind, I'm going to attend to that now. So as you focus on your breath, you, you are open. now this is called open attentional training. You're opening your attention by not having a fixed object because you've mastered that component for, you are able to do it for half a minute or a minute now. So that's a good place to start. Now you can say, okay, I'm going to broaden my attention and I'm just going to f- start focusing on the breath but then keep my mind open to any sensation that the body presents me with. 
and suddenly you'll notice a tickle or a tightness in your back and let that tightness come into your awareness and you then from your part uh, direct your attention to focus on that sensation and just stay on the sensation without judging it, without uh, evaluating it is a better word and stay with it and then you will get the first benefit of this practice which is you'll notice the sensation will disappear. Now the moment you react and say, oh, it hurts, it's been there a long time. The moment you have these two types of thoughts, it will increase and your frustration will increase. So both the subject and the object will be triggers for you to disrupt your practice. So whereas if you don't evaluate it and stay with it, the sensation will decrease. And at that time you say, wow, you, know, you need to reinforce, this is really helpful. You know, it helps to remove this faster than it normally does. And then you can begin to apply to a slight headache you might have, and you'll see it really works. You know, with generalized anxiety disorder patients, most of that are those who come to me, a majority will first complain about physiological symptoms, not about their uh, cognitive distortions and their uh, uh, fears, but I have a headache, I have you know, butterflies in my stomach, I have muscle ache, I can't sleep, I'm very restless, I move around all the time, and you have to address that. And this is one of the most effective techniques I've found uh, to give them evidence. You know, with therapy patients, we don't have magic pills or things to offer. We, we can't do surgery on them, etc. As psychologists, we have to, within two, three sessions, provide them with something that works. Well, experientially, they see it works. Otherwise, they will drop out of therapy. I found this one of the techniques that really works. So maybe Joe, if you like to, yeah, um, and th and the the breathing techniques are very powerful, um, and I like to tell people that the the real practical thing about the breath is it's there. You don't you know, if it's not there, you got a whole different set of problems. <laughs> it's so, free too. <laughs> free, it's right. It's free. Um, so, um, but there's actually lots of ways to practice in our especially in our busy environment one of the things i'll do is i'll open you know i'll open a web page you know where you know, it's like a news site or something like that or or and you know or just some of the mat you know a, a magazine i've you know it's like so i'm looking at the web page and of course there's the there's one article and then there's all these other articles and then there's ads that are popping up and that's a really good training aid because it's okay. I want to keep my attention on this art, this one article, you know, or and then I, I'll watch my attention. Oh, what about no, <laughs> no, not helpful. Oh, there's this. Oh, what about the it's just you can watch your you can watch your attention being pulled and you get practice at just keeping it on one thing. Or I've noticed that if I have a website open and I'm trying to work on a Let's say I'm working on a document, and so my browser is open in the corner. I haven't I haven't closed it. And at first, I used to realize, oh man, that's really distracting. I need to close it, you know, or my email program. I need to close it. 
So that, that helps me get the work done. But as an attentional training tool, it's really helpful to leave them open. So my email program is open on my desktop and I'm working on the document and it goes ping and I'll watch my attention start to get pulled. Oh, what it, and it gives me the opportunity to practice. No, not helpful. Ignore that. Just stay working on the document. So again, if my purpose is to just work on the document and really get focused on that and ignore it, then I'll close off all the distractions. But sometimes the very distractions that make our life difficult, we, we can be used as training aids to help us learn to not just stay focused, but if I start getting distracted, to pull back really quickly. On I call it unhooking. Our attention gets hooked all these. Practice unhooking. Unhooking is different than staying on track. It's a little bit like, I'm jumping around here, I'm sorry. But if you're riding a bicycle, you're never, you're almost never really balanced over your wheels. You're always wobbling a bit. So what happens is you get off balance, your brain notices that and very quickly brings you back over your balance point. And a skilled rider actually does that more frequently than an unskilled rider. An unskilled rider doesn't notice. They get off balance, they get off balance, and then, oh no, I have to recorrect. And it's really hard to correct accurately and they fall. But as you get more skilled, you notice that you're getting off balance. And when you're, you watch someone who's a skilled rider, it looks like they're balanced over their wheel, but the fact is they're they're wobbling imperceptibly. And so one way of developing our attention is to learn to unhook. Yes, we want to sustain attention, but we also need to be able to unhook very quickly. And I think that's what Loeb Singh was talking about. You start to broaden your awareness. You can see the big picture, but you're not getting hooked by anything and then going off down a rabbit hole where, you know, of, of other things. You go, oh, okay, that. What else? What else? And so you're building this big picture with the context of here's what I'm centered on and here's my purpose and here's what I want to accomplish. And you're bringing in lots of other avenues and angles and perspectives and you're able to take that big picture because you're able to unhook from things that would otherwise drag you away. Yeah, I, I, I really like that. I, I, I can't remember who I read saying this a while ago, but they were like, look, meditation is fantastic but we tend to practice it in this way where we lock ourselves away from the world and so it's something that you do in a quiet room with no disturbances and that's the only place where you're able to find this centering but the reality of it is is that you need to be able to find that center when there are a million things that are demanding the attention of you and so the unhooking seems like it's a move in that direction where it allows you to really recognize that you're not you're not disengaging from the world because that's the place where you have to be able to practice this. Yeah, and also in the four foundations that the Buddha taught, if you look under the body, uh, mindfulness, actually uh, there he uh, amplifies the practice from a secluded uh, internal process to, you know, all types of movement, walking, when you're walking, when you're sitting, when you're lying down. So, uh, you know, the, uh, that issue has been recognized very early on in the meditative tradition. The thing is, uh, you know, in the West, uh, you know, we've developed uh, because of, uh, because of the enormous, uh, you know, busy lives people have a lead, we've 
uh, in the West, we've designed the teaching or practice of um, meditation through retreats. So weekend retreats, week retreats. And once you do a, you, you opt for that model, then that model encourages, you know, sitting as a group, sitting individually for long periods of time, then a short period of discussion, etc. And that concept has uh, been amplified to personal, you know, practice at home too. People have said, oh, wow, I, it really feels good to just sit by myself because my life is so busy out there. It's full of noise the moment I step out of my house. And so that's more cultural phenomena because in the, uh, in the East, I think uh, mindfulness and meditation has been practiced more, has, is incorporated into daily life more or much more so. For instance, the monks, right? When they eat, when they, you go to the forest monks in Thailand, for instance, when they wash the, uh, their containers after the, uh, uh, after their meals, that's a time to practice mindfulness. It's interesting that, it's interesting that you say that because that's something that I've, I've noticed where when I'm washing dishes or I'm doing any kind of cleaning, there's, if you can focus really just on your hands right. and just the right. action of the hands right. as they do the task, it's a completely different experience and it's right. very meditative and it's very calming. And as that, opposed would be to the, that would be the mindfulness of uh, uh, feeling. You just feeling are really the sensation. You just feel the sensation. As soon as you project a thought, then you stop that thought because it will disrupt the experience of sensation. And once you get to know sensation, you will see that, you'll say, oh, gee, I, I can stay with the sensation because I find it pleasurable. There's a certain sense of gratification. Okay, let me see if I stop that and just experience the sensation, uh, the feeling. You'll notice the feeling is simply a sensation. It's your uh, fingertips contacting the uh, dish and it's merely a sensei. And then you will have this internal battle or struggle. I don't want to give up this pleasurable sensei uh, feeling. But yet I'm confronted with the fact that feelings core ex nature is pure sensation. And that's what the Buddha wanted you to struggle with, you know, through these practices. But, you know, uh, but at the start, you really need to shift away from thinking and move to sensation, uh, feeling. That's a big step you are taking because you are, calm, you are quieting down feeling because you are recognizing that feeling colors your experience of sensation, like you are sensing it and then you say, oh, after this, what should I do? You know, like I have to go and make a call. And suddenly you see this being fully present one uh, famous psychoanalyst who revolutionized psychoanalysis is Wilford Bion. He, he was born in India during the British time. He fought in the, he, uh, I think he was a captain in the Second World War. He was awarded the Victoria Cross, which is, you know, one of the highest awards for bravery. And he developed the Tavis, oh, anyway, he 
because his exposure to the East as well as Western philosophy, which he brought into uh, the understanding of psychoanalysis, he would he would say how he when he gardens, he he loved gardening. He uh, the last few years of his life he moved to Los Angeles, and he would love gardening, and at that time. That was all he would focus on, the sensation of gardening. He would just, and he would hear the phone ring in his uh, office, but he would shut it out. And here you have a psychoanalyst, you know, who already understood, you know, the concept of mindfulness practice. Uh, and he incorporated, and that became a very important component of his reinterpreting of psychoanalysis, you know, this sense he, uh, of what he described as the O experience, the unknowable. It's a direct experience. If you try to describe it, you instantly move to thinking and that contaminates the experience. It's the experience is lost. And that is uh, the long term, you know, it takes several months to years uh, to have that experience. But Bjorn had that experience because everything he did, like you mentioned, whatever you do, uh, you choose the appropriate, um, uh, you know, uh, faculty, whether it's sensation or whether it's thought or whether it's emotion and whatever is appropriate to the particular experience, you choose that medium and apply it and learn to inhibit all the other uh, interferences or impulses we have to color and to, uh, you know, uh, to impair our contact with real, uh, you know, direct experience, what Bjorn called direct experience. The Buddhist also says, says the same thing. It's called direct experience. Of course, there are differences at other levels between Bjorn and Buddhism, but that's one or I bring this up because, you know, it's, it's not just limited to Buddhism. It's out there. Uh, one famous Buddhist, uh, Buddhist thing, uh, teaching is it's already present. Think the reality is already present. So searching for it is not always the answer because searching for it means it's not present now. It's right within you, right in the environment. You have to look at how you, your perceptual processes. And, and you have to make time for it, it seems like, too. Like, I, I love the idea that, you know, we focus so much in our lives anyways, like, okay, I got to go to the gym or do something active today because I'm going to feel horrible if I don't. And that's true. But we don't always make the space to do something that is just fully experiential, like gardening. I also love gardening, but I, I hardly make any time for it these days. Well, it's the middle of winter. It's, yeah, it's the middle of winter, fair enough. <laughs> but <laughs> you, do you know what I mean? It's like, I wonder how we can multiply those experiences. I've so been meditating. Nasir, you're better at it than me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, select uh, select uh, activities that are really meaningful for you, like if it's gardening, at that time, then determine, as you garden, would you like it as a primary experience, it as a sensory, sensual experience, or would you like to experience it as an affective or emotional experience? And then 
uh, once you make that determination, then go for it and try to just be, and anything else that comes in between, you try to inhibit that. And the idea is to become at one moment with that experience. You know, you become at one moment with it. Uh, and that can only come if you're fully relaxed. If you don't have all this agenda of, oh, I've got to do this. The moment you have an agenda, it will not make it possible. Uh, it's, so tr- it's so true with regards to even just being making this show or doing anything. It's like whenever you try to force things or get too serious, like play, we play, play a lot of music also. And uh, it's like the same thing. Like the, when we start getting overly goal oriented about what we're doing in the studio and like the music we're making, and then we forget to actually enjoy what we're doing. And it just becomes this like nightmare of productivity overtaking. Even you could do that with gardening, really, where you're just oh, like, wow, oh, well, there's you, weeds everywhere. It's, it's also, I think, important to do that. When I mean, we're talking about, I mean, gardening, a lot of people don't they live in a city and they don't have access to a garden. Or, and one of the things I'll find, like, let, let's say I'm working on a task and, you know, my daughter texts me and suddenly we're, you know, I thought she, you know, she was going to, you know, she wants to be picked up early. So there's this aversion to, I have to break from my task. And now I have to, now there's this thought I'm being put in. There's this whole train of mental phenomena. And there's this thing, this aspect of the world. How am I relating to the situation, this way of being? Am I, my way of being, being, consume with these thoughts of, oh, I'm being put out or I'm frustrated. Okay, I could shift my way of being to, okay, I'm going to be the good father. Okay, that's a different way of being. But another way of being is, I just need to take care of this. You know, it's something arises that's unexpected, and it's aversive, or, you know, it just is. I just need to take care of it. And all the tension drains away. And it's like, okay, how do I close my document, making sure I can pick up where I left off, turn off the computer, go out to the car, go get her. Or if I have to do a task, you know, I go downstairs and I find that, you know, oh, this thing, you know, something broke or there's a mess I didn't expect or, you know, there's all these opportunities to say, okay, I can be aversive to, you know, there's an aversion and that that's unease. And then I can, that takes over my thoughts because those feelings are uncomfortable. And now I'm going to be, and now I'm creating a way of being, I'm cre- essentially creating a self or practicing being a self that's really not that pleasant to be around. Or I could practice being a self, oh, this just has to be taken care of. It just is. And I'm involved in the experience and then it's done. And when it's done, then, okay, I move on to the next experience. Mm-hmm. And yeah, my, my brother once like said something to me uh, before he passed away about uh, this is like just telling himself at all times, like, this is just what I'm doing right now. Like if I'm on this long road trip or I have to drive to the doctor or whatever, it's just like, okay, well, this is now I'm driving. And isn't this like, this is driving is actually pretty fun when I think about it or like whatever you're doing, really yeah. just doing it fully a hundred percent and just being there and really being careful to, to be, be okay with this is your life. And this is what it means to be alive and experience and control this car, or do whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. I think, I think maybe one way of looking at the difference between, I'll, I'll call it a more Eastern versus a more Western perspective is the Western we're consumed with nouns. What is it? What is it? What is it? I think what the, at least my experience of Buddha is you're more actually reality is much more a set of verbs. And we miss them because we spend so much time looking at the nouns. And that may be one thing, way of thinking. What, what, 
I'm a verb or I'm a set of verbs. What am I doing? What are the processes I'm engaging? That's who I really am. And verbs don't show up, you know, as concrete objects. They're processes. And we are too, which is really crazy. Like a human being is much better conceived of as some sort of unfolding process rather than an actual discrete material object. You know, our atoms change from minute to minute, but still we're, we have this sense of continuity. And yet we persist. And yet we persist. Some part of us <laughs> persists, yeah. I mean, something that this, this leads me to is the commercialization of mindfulness and the way that it's used as this corporate tool to, to quell the workers and to... to because there's a, there's a danger in telling people not to, not to experience the t torture that they're experiencing. Yeah, because I think that modernity is pretty... Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what the right word for it is. I think that it's pretty panicky. I think that people really want to be great. I think that we live in a world right now where the thing that people want is they want to be on the stage and they want to be able to achieve things and they want to be known for the things that they do. And a lot of people are in jobs that are necessary in order to survive, but they're not necessarily a place where they can thrive. And I feel like mindfulness is this thing that's put onto them to just kind of to help them take it without necessarily. It has that potential for abuse, I guess, is kind yeah. of the bottom line. What, what do you guys think of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, mindfulness is, you know, um, a billion dollar, more than a billion dollar industry. You know, it's a huge commercial uh, enterprise now and uh, you know even researchers are not uh, uh, you know not uh, subtly influenced by that you know and therefore what we see is uh, you know researchers making claims or implying claims which their research don't necessarily bear out and I think that's partly because of the commercial uh, aspect of uh, mindfulness impacting serious researchers. I mean, these are researchers who have, you know, tenure, who um, have years of research experience, very credible, but may not be willing to, you know, uh, really uh, spell out exactly how far mindfulness that they've been studying works or does not work. Or even when they are, they might do so in a highly scientific conservative forum. But when they come to the public, they might sing a very different tune. I know a couple of well-known researchers who do that when they are at the neuroscience scientific meeting, annual meeting, they will present a very, limited, you know, uh, 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 if about effectiveness of mindfulness as being preliminary, something that has to be still uh, studied because of this methodological, uh, conceptual, and uh, other issues. Uh, but when they are in the public, they might fall victim to this whole commercial, um, you know, presentation of it exists in the public uh, domain. And that's something I found that, you know, 
uh, it's hard to challenge. Uh, it's hard to. Uh, I've known some uh, researchers who try to speak out, but their voices are heard. Maybe uh, a newspaper might pick it up and report on what they said. But after a few months, it's it's it no longer receives any traction. Whereas on the other side, the commercial aspect is covered repeatedly, if not in major newspapers who might run it once, but then in magazines. And then from major magazines to new age magazines and so on, it keeps, the cycle keeps feeding itself. So the commercialization is, uh, I found it's a, it's it's not it's more than meets the eye. It's a whole industry that feeds on itself, and uh, I don't see any challenge to it really, except occasionally, uh, you know, someone might speak against it. Yeah, I think. Um, are are you familiar with uh, Ronald Purser's book, Mick Mindfulness? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I know you are. Love saying I didn't know if our if our if our hosts were. Um, yeah, his book, I think, is he talks really more, not just, I mean, Lobsang's referring to how mindfulness may not be as effective as uh, some of these public claims, but he actually goes into the darker side, where this idea of non-judgment is being used to suppress dissent. You know, oh, thoughts are just thoughts. Yeah, that's what I was worried about yeah. uh, when I broke up on this topic a bit. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it seems like a great idea for a corporation that's stuffing people oh. into cubicles or something, you know, like, yeah. ah, just tune it out or something. Yeah. Well, there was, I mean, there was, I think it was in his book or maybe an article where there was a, a, a it was a conference put on by Google and some activists got on stage and, you know, protested about how what was being done by the tech companies was increasing homelessness in San Francisco. And, you know, the, you know, the security was called and they escorted him off. And then immediately it was this sort of mindfulness. Well, you know, they, you know, thoughts are just thoughts and we're not going to judge and they have their opinion and it's just their opinion. It's like, yeah. wait a minute. The Buddha wasn't about ignoring social injustice. That was mm -hmm. not his purpose. You know, mm -hmm. there's certain things. And, and that's where I use the idea of, you know, you have to be able to assess and evaluate and think these are helpful. These are useful. These are these thoughts are going to get us and they're going to take us in this direction. And is it a direction that really we want to go in? And is it is it helpful for other people? What what are the consequences? You need, you know, you need discernment. Mm. Yeah, that's something that I've always wondered about this tenet that life is suffering and the 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 goal is to sort of to to accept that on on some level is that is that true or is that something that you uh, acknowledge well you want to transcend it right and as i understand the buddhist trend yeah uh, the buddhist tradition uh, uh suffering may not be a good translation yeah, but it's widely used even the buddhists themselves use it but really it's a uh, dissatisfaction is more the what the actual meaning is. You know, you can buy, a, you, you know, a young uh, employee might work and work and be motivated because he wants to buy this beautiful car he's dreamt of since uh, uh, he was a child. And then he buys the car and 
for like a couple of months, that's everything. He forgets his family, he forgets his wife, whatever, and that's the car. He washes it every weekend and he takes it for a drive, etc., etc. His whole life is imbued by that, driven by that car. And then after six months, you know, he begins to, it's no longer the same feeling. And then it's, after two years, it's just a car. And then he looks for, oh, there's this latest one, uh, other type of car. And his attention, the moment he finds that, then the value of this further decreases. And that's what Buddha meant by dissatisfaction. That's what he meant by suffering. Suffering, uh, he didn't mean like pain or physical suffering per se. He really meant at its core that it's dissatisfaction. And then coupled with it, there are these four core invariants of life you cannot avoid. One is birth, one is sickness, one is old age, and one is death. So coupled with the dissatisfaction we face, there's this underlying governing principle of life. And he suggests that, the Buddha suggests that instead of waiting for your loved one to die and then say, oh, I have to change my life now, why not embrace the reality that faces you that you'll get sick, you'll become old, and you, you'll die, and embrace that as a part of living, rather than doing everything to avoid facing that. And that's like the principle of exposure therapy, right? Whatever you fear, don't avoid it, because that leads to anxiety. Rather, face it, and that's where you find uh, relief. I'm I'm kind of putting it in simplistic terms, but that's what the Buddha meant. Yeah, and I kind of equate that to the idea of the the hedonic treadmill, where you you want and then you get it, and then there's always something new to want. And people do this with other people too, right? With their relationships, oh, yeah. relationships you know, you, yeah. you see people just cycle through uh, romantic partners or uh, even friend groups, and uh, even just topics of interest, right? Someone can go from being like a super passionate, whatever, baseball fans of being super into, after their baseball years have faded, maybe they get into politics instead and they're like constantly searching for this next thing. Right. Well, I, I want, oh, know, go ahead. So this is, this is where I come in with this idea of unease or dissatisfaction or discontent. So, Reducing unease is pleasurable. We get what we want, we avoid what we're... So pleasure comes from a reduction in unease. But think about it. If I've reduced unease and now I'm content, unease is low, right? I can't reduce it. It's already low. So I can't feel pleasure. If unease is low, if I'm content, I can't feel pleasure. It's like if you eat, you know, you're hungry, you eat, you're no longer hungry. Well, now eating doesn't do anything for you. So when we're content, unease is low, we can't feel pleasure, which then actually becomes a source of unease. Okay, unease, contentment is unstable. We get uneasy about being content. We look for, that's why kids, you know, and parents wonder, why do the kids, you know, everything's going well and now they're getting into trouble. Right, everything was going well and so they got antsy and they, the, the unease started and so now they're doing stuff that will, bring up unease, and then it'll be able to be reduced. And 
That's actually, I think, a very power. I think it's a very important loop in our nervous system because it leads us to discover. I mean, if contentment was stable, we'd get content and we'd still be living in caves. We'd still have childhood diseases. We wouldn't have indoor plumbing. It also, you know, what you know. The problem is that sometimes that desire, you know, you know, that the contentment's unstable. We get into trouble. We, we're, you know, we get into things we probably sh- that that are reducing unease, but they make things more difficult. And so, I think one of the the powerful things about Buddhist practice is you start to notice, okay, this is just unease. What do I want to do with it? How do I want you know? I can I can be uneasy and relieve that unease by going and getting a few drinks. Or maybe I can check and see if, you know, go connect with my neighbor and have a good conversation. Or I can have, you know, some good time with my family. So how do I use this unease? It's using it in the service of reducing difficulty. And that that requires, you know, all the, all these techniques, I think, are really designed to help us do that. And that's what I think, you know, is, you know life is dissatisfaction. You have to learn how to use it. And that's your path out of dissatisfaction. When you're not constantly trying to satisfy yourself. You're saying, wait a minute, let me explore this. The crazy thing about our modern civilization is that we have technologically harnessed the ability to control unease to a degree that we've generated we've started generating more externalities as a result of that process. Like new sources of unease. Cr- are popping up. It's almost like a whack-a-mole situation where as soon as you you deal with one thing, there's like 30, you know, the pharmaceutical industry calls them side effects, but uh, I, I assume there's psychological side effects too. And just, it seems like every time we make ourselves comfortable, um, we've got, you know, new disasters. What, what do you make of that? And especially, I want to add to that, the the kind of the looming what I personally think is a disaster is this quest to end death and old age. Right. Well, cause I mean, that's, if you look at what a lot of the money is going into, it's longevity research. It's, it's being able to, I mean, people openly talk about wanting to end death. And that to me feels like we've had them on the show. Yeah, we have had them on the show. We've also had people on the show that are into wire heading which is this transhumanist philosophy that you'll be able to genetically alter the human brain in order to increase the set point of pleasure. And so what you should orient yourself towards is genetically engineering bliss in people. And I wonder, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. I think those, uh, you know, this is, you know, uh, there's, you know, human desire is, of course, endless, you know. One, when one is fulfilled with one, it's only natural to search for something else. And in a larger extent, I, I think this is what's being played out. And I'm sure also, you know, there will be some limited, you know, inroads any of these endeavors will make. Like we've seen, like with medication, you know, when I remember at the university in 2000, it was uh, it was kind of, we were all feeling like a psychologist. I was feeling as a psychologist, gee, wow, this is the age of medication. These miracle antidepressants and would uh, pop up and this would like take care of all the psychiatric concerns because at that time, that was what was being focused on and was being propagated implicitly, like this is the answer. 
and we were like concerned, gee, but the truth was it it, it, it doesn't pan out, you know, like now there are concerns about antidepressant, you know, in recent uh, literature showing that it may not really be, you know, uh, work, uh, addressing the issue of depression. So uh, I think that's how it will play out, you know, and it's very tempting once you kind of fall in love with the idea you come up with, mm. you're not going to let it go. Mm. It's like, you know, some of the most narcissistic people in the world, uh, apart from politicians and lawyers, are psychologists, you know, in the mental health. Once I, would, I would go so far as to say scientists at large, yeah. Yeah. It's I look at psycho. We have nearly 500 different uh, therapies <laughs> in psychology, and yet it really comes down to two that are kind of solid: uh, psychoanalysis and CBT, which is more research-based, evidence-based. Uh, but yet we have all this, and that's a reflection of, you know, of of narcissism, and it's very hard. In this culture, like you mentioned earlier, you know, everybody loves to like come up with something new, something fancy, something, something that will put them on the stage. You know, and you can see that being, I think that's, that's really the issue. And the thing is, of course, because they are passionate about it, they're attached to it, they will make inroads to, into a certain degree. But, you know, it won't be the answer, you know, and then something else will come up. And the, in Buddhism, we call this the cycle of, you know, uh, degeneration and regeneration. Something that comes will stay for a while and then it will degenerate. But it doesn't mean it's disappeared because something else will regenerate from it. And this is called the cycle of existence. In Buddhism, we call it samsara. It means just a cycle that just plays out again and again. Look at ourselves. I mean, we have all the knowledge we have about uh, the, in the modern age that uh, our predecessors didn't have. Yet the same negative emotions control us. Look at America today. In many ways, uh, the two parties are very primitive, the way they think and uh, way they behave, like they are congressmen. If you ask them, oh, what is the solution? How do we go forward? They will talk simply about how the other side are extremists and extremists have to be gotten rid of. And that's, you know, implying a very primitive, violent attitude. Now, there's, if you take such a stance, there's no room for dialogue. Oh, and if there's no dialogue, there's no growth. So you'll see this, we, and we are part of that. You know, most of us stay away from it because it's so depressingly, and because it's so depressant, it makes us complacent and disengaged. Mm. And this feed on itself. This is the degenerative part, but then the regenerative part will take different forms. And, and it makes you feel so helpless too, really, yeah, when you when you, when you feel like nothing you do really matters. You know, you look at voting records versus outcomes politically; they're like completely detached from it, and you're just like, uh, like. There was a really depressing Yale study, I think, last year, which was like voting doesn't do anything. 
Yeah. <laughs> Where you're just... Yeah, I remember, you know, I remember when I came to the United States 20 years ago, if there was someone on the street who had a car breakdown, other cars would stop right away and ask. It was just spontaneous. Anywhere I went, that would happen. But now, if someone is severely hurt, nobody, people look and just drive on. There's that indifference. You know, this complacency has the danger of turning into what Buddhists called indifference. And indifference is, you know, is something that takes us into a dark path Mm. as a society, you know. Mm. And it ripples down, this indifference. You can see it ripple down. At least I live in Los Angeles, so where there's, you know, uh, there are safe areas and there are unsafe areas. But safe areas are never safe. Well, there's safe areas in Los Angeles? <laughs> oh, suppose, that's what I was going to say. The safe areas are never safe because it's surrounded by unsafe situations happening all the time. And we can keep a, and most people keep a blind eye to it. They, oh, they just say, oh, yeah, okay. And then, oh, I have to go and pick up my child. That's how I, I, I experience this all the time. In the environment I live, when parents, oh, did you hear about, oh, I have to now go home quickly because I have to do this and that. Mm-hmm. And this, this avoidance just now and turning into complacency, but it will turn into indifference. And indifference means you don't care what happens to the other person. Yeah, and then like that's just going to undermine the entire civilization eventually when people get so caught off from one another they can't relate they can't they can't even unite themselves against common problems anymore Absolutely. because they're, they're so cut off. You don't from... see it. You don't see it. Yeah, no common effort to unite against glaring problems right in our front steps. You know, like uh, people living in poverty, homelessness, crime. You know, I mean, it's it's mind-boggling. Whereas in underdeveloped or developing countries, these things they are now beginning to address quite successfully. Hmm. So D- we Dr. have a long road, but you know, it's at the same time, you know, it's a process of regeneration and degeneration. So I don't believe that the world will end. I believe it's a cycle, but still. Well, it's certainly ended many times before, it seems like. I mean, civilizations have a history of collapsing under their own weight at some point. And like some of that is imperial, but some of it must be psycho-spiritual as well, where people lose the ability to feel like they can influence their daily, you know, their environment. Yeah, like it seems like at some point it gets to be so big that you, I mean, this is this is a problem of modern life, right? That we're no longer part of small communities, we're part of this larger community. A lot of people are, are associating with people primarily through social media or online. And it creates the situation where you go out into the world and you're like, I don't know any of these people. They're not related to me. Sure. We don't share interests. We don't have, we don't have a, a, a shared experience and because of that they're they're meaningless to me and that i think is what shakes a society apart is that you just don't owe anything to anybody right but i think there's um in fact i i 
where did I, I put this up on a comment recently? There was it was talking about how um, you know nothing changes, and you know you know people are trying to elect this president or that president, and nothing changes. And I said, first of all, you know, in politics, it, it's run. People who are rich want to run things so they can they can stay rich. That's just that's just the way people are. It's not that they're bad people or they, that's people. It's so in a political you, you've. I don't know of any political system that's really served the needs of the populace. It's always <laughs> served the needs of those in power. But what you can do is you can connect with the people locally. You can connect with the people around you. And I use the analogy, I mean, yes, you're only lighting one candle. But if everybody lights a candle, you shed a lot of light. And what we have to do is stop looking for a bonfire to start because mm-hmm. either the wood's wet or it's going to cause a conflagration. You know, like, you know, getting in the habit of just talking to people, you find out stuff about, you You know, you know, who's, who are your neighbors, not your friends on Facebook, who are your next door neighbors, who are the people who live in, and I think people, people naturally do that. The people I, you know, the, the, the patients I work with, they're, they're very open to that. A lot of people do that spontaneously. And I did, I think what we miss is that the fact is that that's really important People do it, but when we don't realize that we're doing something that's important, we tend to disparage it, or we don't we don't put energy into it. We, we don't make it a priority. And well, you don't get money for it. I guess that's no. that's what no, it comes down and to, and that's and, like our and, monolithic value structure. I mean, not even like on a personal level, but just from the fact that you know these corporations that are making a lot of the decisions in terms of even our own financial futures like to the extent that we have invested in our retirement funds and so forth they're fundamentally driven by a single metric which is growth and all of our decisions end up being based on that i mean we to the fact that we've relegated our healthcare to this corporate structure as well it's like how can it make human decisions if we have the whole thing tuned to this single right. value right well that's i mean growth at all costs i mean if you think about a body the different types of cells in the body what type of cell has the value grow at all costs growth is the only priority the really bad one it's cancer cells <laughs> yeah that's what cancer is it's grow I, i'm gonna grow and i'm gonna get bigger and the expense of everything else and that's what we have in our, I mean, when, when growth and greed are the, is the priority, you have a body, as our social system, if it's a body, cancer is encouraged. We encourage cells to get cancerous. Well, I don't, you know, connecting with neighbors and stuff, I mean, yes, that, I mean, I'm, no, I'm under no illusions that that's going to change the political system. But it is something we can do. And if we do look out for each other, we're going to be better off than if we don't. If we just throw up our hands in despair. In the context of cancerous growth, I, I came across something really interesting. We interviewed Nick Lane a couple of days ago, and he wrote this book called Transformer, where he talks about life as being defined by the way that it channels energy and like metabolic energy for him because he's a biochemist. But he makes this case that I'd never seen before that. If you take a cancerous cell, our current paradigm is the fact that there's genetic mutations and that cell will always be cancerous, but you can take it and you can transplant it into a healthy environment and it's controlled by its environment and it doesn't cause a tumor somewhere else. Like there's a point where it becomes metastatic, which that's not the case. But prior to metastasis, if you take that cell that's growing a tumor and you put it into a healthy environment, it will cease 
it's it, it will not be able to create a tumor anymore, which I'd never heard before, and I've just oh. been thinking a lot about it the last few days. So that mean that would mean if you have a very healthy social environment where the the real value is do good unto others, you know that sort of thing. Then even you know someone who's naturally maybe more greedy than others, it would attenuate, and so they might acquire some things, but then they're going to actually work. You know, they'll be more likely to do good for their environment. It's interesting. And I think about this a lot in context of the American idea of coolness, where to be cool is to never say that somebody's doing something bad. It's almost this kind of like non-judgmental thing of distancing yourself from what's happening around you and not being the one who's like, hey, that's really messed up and you shouldn't do that. And I think that there is this if people were able to develop an internal sense of what is good and what is bad that comes from listening to themselves and dealing with the unease and focusing on that and being able to kind of maintain their own garden, then maybe we could get to the point where it would be easier for us to kind of universally be like, hey, I don't think we should tolerate that behavior. It, it risks too much to allow it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an important point you're bringing up because, uh, you know, if you look at the Buddha, uh, I think, you know, he, in many ways, the history books will tell you that Buddhism emerged as a revolution against the caste system that was prevalent in India at that time. And, it, and to what extent it was, but also there's another side to the Buddha, which was uh, he understood human nature. You know, he understood there would be wars. So he never actively tried to stop wars, but rather he encouraged the kings to look into their own souls, into uh, seeing what is beneficial, and I think Job made a good distinction here, rather than seeing good versus evil, the, you know, the Buddhists were smart enough to see that that's not helpful. What is helpful is to see whether something is beneficial or, as Job put it, helpful versus unhelpful. And I think uh, that's how the Buddha kind of approached the social issues. He, instead of telling all the kings to stop wars and charge them for it or rebuke them for it, he took this more long-term view of encouraging them uh, through parables. He told them stories. Uh, uh, he gave examples and to explain how their state of mind and how their desires and hatred and above all ignorance kind of is informing their decisions. Yeah, and the original and Christian think, traditions uh, were, were not so far different from that way. too. Right. But, yeah, but I think it's... But, but if you look at... But if you look at the way things, how we perceive things, here is we, we say we have to stop wars and people who want to go to war are bad or extremists. And 
That's an important, I think, part. But the real issue we should also be focusing on is to encourage people who are in that state of mind to kind of, uh, which is a long-term process, uh, is to look into their themselves as to why they adapt such violent means mm. and what motivates them to do so. And that was the Buddha's approach. So he was never fully successful in directly stopping wars, but he was very successful in uh, you know, encouraging several of the kings to give up war, uh, warring on their own. So if, it's, if it starts with a few, at least that's a major you know, shift in the dynamics. But if we maintain polarities, we have to do this is bad and this is good. I think it's a never-ending battle with no change in the extreme positions. And I think that's what the Buddha kind of eventually discovered for himself, that you can't change people's behavior right away. And to try to do that polarizes them and maintains the status quo. But I think in, uh, and we see this play out in the modern, uh, you know, in the modern culture and traditions. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've, uh, we've talked, we've, we've covered a lot of topics. Do you have more? Uh, I think we're oh, huge. Put a it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's enormous. I mean, and it's played out across the East and West, which is really fascinating. Like, I just can't stop being struck by the parallels uh, to both the Stoic tradition and also the early Christian tradition before mm-hmm. the bureaucracy of the church inserted itself into matters. Um, I, I don't know th- how to, how the, how we'll be able to implement these in our civilization uh, before it's too late. Exactly. I'm not like a doomer or anything, but uh, I don't, I, I, I <laughs> Nasty is a doomer. Um, <laughs> I, I just see, uh, I, I love the idea of localism. Um, I love the idea of us taking control over our environments I just don't know how to fight against the overwhelming pressures and incentive structures that are fundamentally focused on growth as a mono value system. And it's just a real crisis for, for us to all figure out in terms of, uh, I think even in terms of combating these free floating anxieties that everyone's experiencing. And yeah, it's just a huge topic. I don't expect that we're going to be able to solve that in one session. But I think that we have come to some important lessons, which is that the the progress begins internally, right? This is it's it's so well known that it's almost trite to say so, but you know, clean clean your own room, manage your own garden, focus on your own ability to escape from this drive towards eternal growth and always more and more and more. And if you can and if you can do that and you can impart it on your children or your friends or your community, then maybe a few generations down the line we won't have people that are interested in running, you know, multinational war industries. And focus on the wisdom, not the mysticism too, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. really anything yeah, we can I do. Think that's, yes. really, that's really good. That's good. <laughs> so let's put a pin in it for today. Um we're going to keep studying these issues and talk to more people and maybe down the road we can talk to you guys again 
and you know once we've learned a bit more and, and have a bit more depth to the perspective but it's been really illuminating to talk to both of you and I, I really appreciate you giving the time to this project so that we can sort some of these ideas out and hopefully move forward yeah thank, thank you, you very so much, much. Yeah, thank you it was wonderful thank, thank you, you so much again really thank you thank you giving us this opportunity absolutely that's what we're here for we're gonna figure it all out eventually <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right take care guys right. Thank, thank you thank you, thank you so much bye, bye. bye.